Tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. Galactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's the 29th of November, 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson, and on today's show, we're going to be talking to the new head of the Los Angeles Times Book Review. David Eulen. Poet David Lehman is also going to stop by and we'll have another installment of Literature in Translation, courtesy of worldlingo.com, a translation website. But first, here's some news from the book world. National Endowment for the Arts Chairman Dana Joya has announced the launch of the Poetry Out Loud project, a program intended to encourage high schoolers to discover, quote, Great poetry through memorization and performance and competition. And quote, as Bob Hoover points out in his weekly Pittsburgh Post-Gazette column on books, what we're talking about is essentially a national poetry bee where the top winner is going to get a $20,000 college scholarship. The program is being funded partly by the Poetry Foundation in Chicago. They're kicking in $500,000 to match the NEA's $500,000 investment program will be held nationwide and will include the publication of an anthology of some of the contestants, says a release from the Poetry Foundation. The program, quote, builds on the resurgence of poetry as an oral art form as seen in the slam poetry movement, remember that, and the immense popularity of rap music amongst youth. And quote, says Joya, quote, it isn't just an arts program. By immersing themselves in powerful language and ideas, the students will develop their ability to speak well especially in public. Elsewhere, some students in Northampton, Massachusetts, want Smith College to erect a statue to Sylvia Plath, who graduated from Smith in 1955. The Springfield Republican, however, is reporting that the students are not from Smith. They're from the nearby University of Massachusetts. Michael Haley is heading a group called the Sylvia Plath Committee, And he accuses Smith of, quote, hiding the legacy of Sylvia Plath within the closed doors of academia. He says, we think a monument to Sylvia Plath right out there in public view would give everybody access to her voice. He also says Plath is, quote, a goddess of acuity. And also says, quote, she's the reason I go on every day. Meanwhile, a Smith spokeswoman said no one from Haley's group had contacted the college. In 1998, lesbian writer Sarah Schulman published Stage Struck, Theater Aids and the Marketing of Gay America, in which she detailed how the Broadway musical Rent was ripped off from her novel, People in Trouble. She detailed similarities and explained why she didn't sue for copyright infringement. But according to a column in Slate, or on Slate, by June Thomas, now that a movie of Rent has just been released, Schulman is really annoyed. Jordan asks Shulman what's most annoying, and Shulman responds, quote, not making any money from it was 
quite annoying since rent has earned an enormous amount, certainly enough for me to get an apartment with an elevator. But the larger issue, says Shulman, has to do with the representation of AIDS, gay people, and urban gentrification. These three areas have been massively misrepresented in mainstream entertainment and media, and rent is the epitome of that misrepresentation. In other news, Stanford University has announced it will be serializing digital facsimiles of several of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories, the same way they were originally serialized in the late 19th century. Starting in January, the school will release first A Scandal in Bohemia, followed by The Speckled Band, and then The Hound of the Baskervilles, before wrapping up in April with The Final Problem, the book that was supposed to kill off the Holmes series by killing off Holmes. He went over a waterfall with his arch nemesis, Professor Moriarty, in that one, but Doyle had to bring Holmes back from the dead. That's all subscribers are going to get at Stanford, though. They can either opt for paper facsimiles or at sherlockholmes.stanford.edu. They can download PDF files that will exactly replicate the original magazine serialization. And finally, in the news, the New York Times has released its annual list of the 100 notable books of the year. Some shocking inclusions this year, including books by Times staffers Michael Kimmelman, Thomas Friedman, Maureen Dowd, Linda Greenhouse. There's a book by the Times former editor-in-chief Joe Lelyveld, a book by Robert McCrum, who's married to a Times staffer, Sarah Lyle, Books by writers Mary Roach and Victor Davis Hanson, whose publishers are careful to point out in their bios that they are frequent contributors to the Times. There's books from regular Times contributors Francine Prose and Catherine Harrison. The grand total was three to one men. This too will shock you. There were 36 books from Random House, 15 from their Knopf imprint, three books from the Times own imprint, and a grand total of four books from independent presses. Congratulations to Encounter, Copper Canyon, McSweeney's, and Public Affairs. The few, the proud. And that's the news for the 29th of November 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's November 29th, and on this day in literary history, Louisa May Alcott was born in 1832. Alcott was raised in Concord, Massachusetts, where her father, Bronson Alcott, was a member of the famous Transcendentalist Club with Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau. Raised in the lap of Transcendentalism, Louisa May Alcott became both an abolitionist and a feminist. But today, Alcott is mostly remembered for her wildly popular and partially autobiographical novel, Little Women. It was a novel that she wrote at the encouragement of her publisher and one that helped shape the ideal of Victorian womanhood. But she herself disliked it. Instead, Alcott preferred the lurid Gothic tales that she published pseudonymously as A.M. Barnard, passionate, fiery stories known as potboilers or blood and thunder tales. Their protagonists were willful women, relentless in their pursuit of their aims, which often included revenge on those who had humiliated or thwarted them, women who sold their souls to the devil, and governesses who looked sweet and innocent by daylight, but who ruined the souls of little children by night. 
These works achieved immediate commercial success, though Alcott herself in Little Women called them, quote, dangerous for little minds. Her publishers offered her more money if she would agree to publish these under her own name, but she could not bring herself to embarrass her father and his transcendentalist friends. She wrote, to have had Mr. Emerson for an intellectual god all one's life is to be invested with a chain armor of propriety. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's this day in literary history. I know my chickens. You got to know you are chickens. I know my chickens. You got to know you are chickens. I know my chickens. You got to know you are chickens. I know my And now it's time for World Literature in Translation with Dennis Johnson. Today's translation is brought to you by the online translation website worldlingo.com. We continue now with our reading from the great Russian masterpiece Anna Karenina by Count Leo Tolstoy. In our last installment, we left Arkady wakening on his sofa, recalling a dream. The eyes of Stepana of Arkadicha gaily became shiny, and, it thought, smiling. Yes, it was well, very well, was much still there outstanding. Yes, you will not say by words, and by thoughts, even in reality, you will not express. I, after noting the strip of light, opened from the side one of cloth door, it gaily threw down feet from the sofa, it found by them Shitya by wife, gift to the birthday in the past year, the polished into the golden Morocco shoes, and on the old to nine-year habit, without arising, it stretched itself by hand to that place, where, in the bedroom, it has a vissel dressing gown. And here it recalled suddenly, as why he will sleep not in the bedroom of wife, and in the office, while smile disappeared from its face, it wrinkled forehead. Ah, 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 it began to low, recalling everything which was, and to its imagination were presented again all details of quarrel with the wife, entire hopelessness of its position, most agonizing, its own fault. And that's today's installment of World Literature in Translation. David Eulin, the new editor of the Los Angeles Times Book Review, is on the line. David, where do you start when you take over a job like this? The inquiries and solicitations from publishers and authors alone must, must be overwhelming. They're pretty overwhelming, but it's, you know, it, one of the interesting things is the last time I had a job at all like this, and it wasn't like this because it was for a much smaller weekly paper, was about 10 years ago, which was before the advent of email. And uh, email has made dealing with solicitations and actually dealing with them, as in responding to them and also not having them take over your life, much easier. Um, back when I did this in the early 90s, it was all telephone stuff, and that could really eat up your day. Emails, you can kind of I try and deal with them at the beginning of the day and then sort of at the end of the day and kind of keep it under control that way. Mm -hmm. uh, that said, there is a lot of sort of 
both external um, interest and solicitation and, and, and internal uh, issues in terms of sort of how to take over something that is already in process and kind of subtly redirect it in a little bit uh, and sort of have it take on one's own personality and stamp. Um, all of these are kind of, I wish I had a specific defined answer for you. It's sort of a kind of daily wrestling match, I guess, uh, <laughs> where you, where I sort of, you know, some days it, it runs smoothly, some days I feel a bit overwhelmed. Uh-huh. Well, what kind of filters are there between you and just, you know, a publicist? Well, I mean, I answer my own phone, which I probably shouldn't say um, on, <laughs> in a public forum, but it's true. So um, and I <laughs> that I'll, I'll 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 leave. And I do tend to respond to my own emails. It's, there there aren't that many filters. I mean, one of the great things about the LA Times book review is that it is one of I think the few remaining book reviews in the country that has a staff, a, a fairly substantial staff. So that there are um, there are other editors here. There are uh, there are four other editors who work with me. There is a staff writer. There's um, support staff. Uh, 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 there's a you know, a, a department um, assistant who takes care of a lot of sort of the, the, the pragmatic aspects of it, leaving me to kind of do more big picture stuff, work with writers, um, make assignments and, and those kind of things. And everybody has their own sort of level of, of, of connections and contacts and people contact them. So while I'm getting a lot of stuff myself, I'm also sort of having um, stuff presented to me by people who work with me, um, things that, that writers or publicists or people there in contact have brought to their attention, so that there is a kind of more of a conversational aspect to how we put the thing together. Well, can you walk us through what the, what the process is? How is a book uh, selected for review, then assigned, then edited, etc.? Well, I can walk you through as the process as much as I can actually explain it. It's it, it's both a fairly rational process and also a fairly intuitive process, and it kind of sits in the middle of those things. Obviously, we get a ton of books. Um, I was told when I took the job that it was something in the order of 150 books a day. I'm not sure if that's completely accurate or not, and often we get multiple copies of books, so you, you can sort of do the math. But it is an enormous volume of books, and we can really cover, uh, by my estimate, something in the range of about 80 books a month, mm-hmm. um, which, again, is, is quite a lot compared with um, the kind of book coverage most newspapers have. But still, is a complete drop in the bucket when you consider what comes in and what doesn't. So basically what happens is the books come in, um, there's someone on staff who opens them, and we have a big room with shelves, uh, you know, floor-to-ceiling shelves, all four walls where the books are, are put and arranged, both chronologically and then within that alphabetically by author so we can find what we're looking for. And I make a point of going in there a couple of times a day because mail gets delivered throughout the day to sort of sift through the new stuff and see what looks good and interesting. Um, I, I think there are in any given month probably 30 to 40 slam dunks you know, books that you you know you see them whether it's a writer I really admire, or it's an important book, or it's a subject that seems interesting to me, or interesting to the culture, or or whatever. These are just obvious choices. You know, you 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 see them, you know this this book will be covered in some form or another. And then, of course, there are uh, you know the, there are those books that you know for whatever reason you're not going to cover again, not not necessarily because of quality, but because of what they're about or whether they fit kind of the overall vision of the section or um, 
whatever. You just know those books aren't going to get in. The real trick of it is picking the other 40 books from the three or 400 possible choices. And that's, I think, where the intuitive part comes in. A lot of it has to do with how sections fall together. I tend to want, I don't believe in theme sections per se, but I do tend to want each Sunday section to have its own sort of interior logic. So a lot of times I might put a book in um, because it goes well with another book because they seem to either echo each other or argue with each other or it seems to fit some kind of, for want of a better phrase, a kind of narrative through line. I'm always looking for sort of structural through lines and, and, and so the issue will work as an issue as well as the individual reviews working as individual reviews. The other side of it is there may be a book where there's a writer who I have writing for me who I just think would be perfect for that book, and I think that they would make a really interesting piece or review of the book. I'm interested uh, both in terms of the books themselves, but in the reviews as pieces of writing. So I will sometimes assign a book simply because I think it will make for um, a fascinating piece of writing by a particular writer or contributor of, of, of ours. And then, of course, I think there is the fact that I've got four uh, other editors and a, and a writer who are all bringing in stuff that they're interested in, because the section, while I sort of oversee it, it needs to reflect the personality of the staff as well. We are a collaborative enterprise, and my areas of interest are woefully incomplete in certain areas, and I rely on um, the other people who work on the book review to bring in things and make the case for things that I might might at first blush overlook. Did you bring in your own coaching staff? Did I bring in my own coaching staff? No, I, 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 uh, <laughs> actually, the staff here has been together for a long time and I, and I think very highly of, I, I had the sort of fortunate experience of having written for the paper for many years and written for the book review so that I had worked with pretty much everyone here at some capacity or another. Um, so I had a sense of how things ran and I think actually that they, it's a it's a really strong staff, and in many ways, it's a staff that has been sort of underutilized and under uh, appreciated over the years. So, um, I I was very fortunate to to inherit a good coaching staff. <laughs> well, let me let me go back to the assignment business for a minute. Um, beyond you know just an, an obvious matchup of uh, of a writer with a book, um, what kind of decision making do you go through on deciding how to assign a book for review? Well. I mean, again, I think that may be the best way to do it. I'll, I'll weigh the book. I'll look around. Um, I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, we didn't review Simon Winchester's book about the 1906 earthquake, um, A Crack in the Edge of the World. The reason we didn't review that, it's a book that that, that it definitely interested us, and we were, um, and we certainly considered reviewing it. And you would have been a natural reviewer for that yourself. I would have been a natural reviewer for that myself. I had to recuse myself from reviewing it because I interviewed him publicly. And um, I should also just fill in our listeners uh, that, that don't know, one of your own books is the, the Myth of Solid Ground, Earthquakes, Predictions, and the Fault Line Between Reason and Faith. Right. And so I was very interested in this book. And, and you know, I had agreed to interview him uh, publicly at the L.A. Public Library. Mm-hmm. Um, so I recused myself from writing the review it would have been one thing if I'd written the review prior to meeting him but once we met and had our conversation and kind of got to know each other it felt a little it felt like it would be a little funny for me to end up reviewing the book so I recused myself that was one issue in terms of the book not being reviewed um, the second issue was that the book fell into the cracks 
because it hadn't been assigned, and when I came on, it was already out. So there was also the timeliness question. And then the third issue was that there had been a previous book that came out in June that Philip Fradkin wrote about the 1906 San Francisco earthquake, which had gotten a big review um, in the book review. Again, this was before I came on, but only a few months before I came on. So in that sense, those three bits of circumstantial data conspired against the book being reviewed, even though it was a book that we were very interested in, and in the normal course of events probably would have reviewed. So sometimes it's factors like that that come into play, and it's really a kind of circumstantial situation. Sometimes it's, um, frankly, an oversight thing. I mean, sometimes we just miss books. Um, there is only so much you can process before your eyes start to blur. That's another reason why it's good to have a staff so that there are, you know, hopefully people's eyes are blurring at different points during the day <laughs> so, and someone is, is kind of picking up the slack. And then, of course, as I say, I mean, the, the question, the other question, the, the other issue that, that comes up in particularly in terms of my own areas of interest and in terms of, of this book section is that I've also done a lot of work with um, Southern California literature and, and local writing. And while I don't want the book section to be a parochial local section, I also feel that one of the directions I want to push it in, where I feel it hasn't been responsive enough in the past, is in regard to how we cover local writers. So as another example, we had this, this, um, just this most recent Sunday a review that dealt with a couple of volumes of poetry, one of which was uh, a book by a local poet named Lewis McAdams about the Los Angeles River. McAdams, among other things, is the founder of Friends of the Los Angeles River, which is an advocacy group um, to try and revive the river. And this is a book of poetry that he's been working on for quite a long time um, in bits and pieces, probably since the early 1990s. So that, to me, seemed a book that, while in, you know, in the normal course of events, another newspaper section, New York Times, say, or the Chicago Tribune, or San Francisco Chronicle might not cover that, that we, I felt that we had a sort of responsibility to look at that, because this is an important, I think, an important local writer dealing with an important local issue, and we needed to sort of make room for that kind of thing. So those are all, those are some of the kinds of factors that come into play. Again, I think with each book, it becomes an individual situation. And there is nothing more frustrating about the job than the books that you want to get in, but somehow they just you just can't, the, the Winchester being a, a perfect case in point. Time goes by, or you, 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 know, it, it, you have a, a kind of a, a conspiracy of circumstances that, that prevents you from covering everything you need to cover. When you're dealing with reviewers, um, do, you, do you have a set of guidelines for reviewers? How do you uh, watch out for things like conflicts? Yes, I do. I mean, I'm actually in the process of writing up a formal set of guidelines, which we will um, send out with all books that go out for review. But um, I, I do look out for a number of things. I'm, I'm a complete conflict stickler um, in many ways, perhaps overzealous on this issue, but I think it's really essential. Um, I think for me, I don't necessarily sort of disqualifier reviewer if they know or have met someone that they're going to write about but I want to know what is the nature of the relationship and I want to be able to make the assessment what I pref what I ask reviewers to do is if they if they if they feel that there is even the possibility of conflict that they tell me what it is and then we can decide together um, the la the thing that I really don't want is to be caught off guard or unaware or to have um, to find out after the fact that somebody reviewed a book by someone they knew. Mm -hmm. 
do you have a concern about any kind of political balance in your pages? And I'll give you an example. I did a panel uh, a few months ago with Sam Tannenhaus of the New York Times Book Review, and he said that one thing he considers when he's handing out books for assignments is he does like to strive for balance by giving books by left-wingers to right-wingers and vice versa um, as, as, as part of his pursuit of just an ongoing political balance. Mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you feel about that? Is that, is that a, a concern of yours as well? You know, it is and it isn't. I wouldn't say it's as, as formalized a concern of mine. Um, from my point of view, I, I'm more interested in, and I think this is just to sort of open up the conversation, this is also true in terms of literature as well as books about politics. I'm interested in having reviewers who will give me some kind of unexpected or unpredictable response to a book. Sometimes that may be to have um, someone on the left review a book by someone on the left um, and and sometimes and that, that they may yield a more unpredictable response than someone on the right. Someone on you know, depending on who those people are. If you have say Bill O'Reilly review a book by Al Franken, you know what the nature of that review is going to be. By the same token, though, you know I wouldn't have um, as an example when the John Banville novel came out. One of our critics emailed me and said, I love John Banville, can I review the book? And I said, actually, I, I, I'm going to give it to someone else because I'm not looking for someone who loves Banville or someone who hates Banville. I'm looking for someone who isn't going in with a preconception of Banville or what this book is going to be and will be able to address it on its own terms. And for me, fundamentally, when, particularly when, when you're dealing with nonfiction books or books with some kind of political component, that's really what I'm looking for, is who is the reviewer who is most going to address this book on its own terms and take it on if it needs to be taken on or praise it if it needs to be praised without letting a political agenda of either side get in the way. Um, so I tend to take each one on a kind of case-by-case situation, a case-by-case -case scenario. Is there a repertorial uh, obligation? In other words, do you feel that part of part of a book review is simply telling a reader what a book is, what it's about, in, in a kind of an objective manner? You know, yes and no. <laughs> I do think that amidst all the high-minded discussion of criticism, which I engage in constantly and think about all the time, and I do want the section to be sort of high-minded and, and intelligently critical, and I want these reviews to stand as pieces on their own and all that sort of thing. I do think it is also really important for us to remember that there is a service journalism component to book reviewing or to sort of any kind of newspaper writing in general or arts criticism, and that the fundamental issue is that you are having a conversation with the reader of the book review about these books and, frankly, whether they are worth laying down $25 for. Books are ridiculously expensive and it's a lot of money to pay for a book. I do think that that's part of the point of the review, but I don't want that to be the overt point of the review. I don't want a reviewer saying, you know, buy the book, don't buy the book. I think that it's a more sort of nuanced kind of service you're providing where you create a conversation in many ways, I think of it as a three-way conversation between the author of the book, the reviewer of the book, and the reader of the book review about the book. And so I want reviews that are a response to those books, that are a reaction to those books that, that they are about, and that readers can kind of jump in and participate. That said, at the end of the day, I do want readers to walk away from the, the review having some clear sense of what the reviewer thought and whether the book is something that they are interested in reading or paying money to own. 
Um, I don't like plot synopsis in reviews, particularly in reviews of fiction. I think it's a lazy reviewer's trick, and I think it's also unfair to readers because it sort of strips away the discovery, the aspect of discovery that reading a book is about. So in that sense, I would rather a reviewer err on the side of less specific information about a book than more. But I do think they need to provide enough information about the book to support their criticisms and make them make sense. Now, you're an author yourself. You've written the, the book about earthquakes I cited before. You've edited uh, anthologies about uh, California writers. And you've also published uh, a book of poetry. Mm-hmm. And how... You, had to, you found that, did you? That? <laughs> you dug that one up, did you? I, I, I did my research. It's true. <laughs> but um, I'm intrigued as to how that, in particular, is going to affect you on the job. You've been through the process on, on several fronts. Well, it's an interesting thing, and, I, and the, the real honest answer is I can't tell you how it's going to affect me on the job. I can tell you how it has affected me or not affected me as a critic, um, because all, throughout all of this process of publishing these books, um, the first one, the, the poetry book came out in, in the early 90s, and the other ones have come out in the last you know, four or five years, I was an active book critic um, and actively engaged in this whole sort of ongoing discussion uh, of criticism. If, if the question has to do with whether it's made me a softer reviewer or not, I don't think it has, although you'd have to ask people who've, who've been reading my criticism. I think that I'm less gratuitously um, judgmental, but I think that's also a function of age. The, uh, what I was wondering was whether, having uh, published a book of poetry yourself, that might mean that we'll be seeing more poetry reviewed in the, in the LA Book Review. We have seen more poetry reviewed. Um, in the last several weeks, we've, there have been uh, one substantial feature, full-page review of poetry in each issue. And while I don't know that we're necessarily going to have one per week, there is poetry has, has always been something I read. I don't really write very much of it anymore, but I've always um, felt very strongly about poetry, and I think that it's really a significant part of the cultural conversation that I want the review to have. So, absolutely. Um, as far as any of, and as far as other things, I mean, the, the other real sort of offshoot of my own writing that I think will affect the editorial focus of the review is that I'm fundamentally interested, as my earthquake book might suggest, in nonfiction as a creative literary form and as an emerging as an emerging genre. Um, and I'd like the review to reflect that in some way. I'd like the reviews of nonfiction to reflect that in some way when appropriate. I'm very interested in this sort of amorphous field that alternately is called creative nonfiction or narrative nonfiction or, or whatever it is, um, but for me is a, an area where you can, as a writer, can kind of blend uh, elements of, of reporting and narrative and memoir and, um, you know, research and, and meditation and theorizing and all those sorts of elements into a kind of loose and co- yet cohesive whole. That was what I was trying to do in the Earthquake book, and I think there's a lot of writers. Rebecca Solnit is an example of someone who does this, I think, quite compellingly. Um, and I think that this is something that I would like the review to cover and maybe identify more as an emerging genre and approach it from the point of view of an emerging genre. That said, the other thing that I'm doing, which has nothing to do with the stuff that I generally write, is trying to turn the focus back on a fiction a little bit more than has been the case here in the past. It seems that um, the focus for many years was very heavily nonfiction based. And I, although I write nonfiction, I'm a 
deep and devoted reader of fiction and write, write about fiction quite a lot. And I think it's really important for us to be looking at, um, at contemporary fiction with a very close eye as well as this other kind of material. Well, um, final question. How is this going to affect you as a writer? Are you still going to be able to write criticism? Will you still be writing books, whether of, of poetry or nonfiction or whatever? Well, you know, the fantasy hope is that it will actually improve my life as a writer by making it so that I don't have to write for a living, <laughs> so, so that I can really focus on the material that most moves me. You know, the the you know that that's the that's the hope. The honest answer is it's too early to tell. Although I have been doing a fair amount of writing in the first uh, eight weeks that I've been on the job, I had a piece uh, recently of a fairly substantial first-person essay in the Los Angeles Times Magazine. I've written a couple of pieces for my own section, which is one of the great fringe benefits of editing. Uh, I'll you know, your pitches get accepted. And um, and I plan to continue to do that. Um, I think that in terms of the section itself, I don't. I think it's really important to have a balance where it, it doesn't become, you know, the David Eulin review of books. Um, but I also think that there's a way that editing and writing, for me at least, kind of fuel each other and play off of each other, and that working with someone else's copy and working with a, a writer, and I do tend to be a very sort of hands-on editor where I will take pieces through drafts and I'll sit down and talk to writers and go through their work, and there's something about kind of immersing in someone else's writing that allows me to see my own writing a little bit more clearly. I am in the process, or under contract, I should say, because process is quite a relative term to write a, a, a short book, which I'm working on slowly but surely at the moment. So I, my plan is to continue to write, um, certainly not as much as I was prior to the job, but again, as I said before, I think that may actually be a good thing. Mm -hmm. What about your reading life? Do you ever read for pleasure anymore? I haven't read for pleasure in years. <laughs> no, that's, that's, a, that's a glib thing to say, and I, and I should take it back before I get myself into trouble. No, I do read for pleasure. In fact, um, I have found that I have been able to read for pleasure a little bit more than I used to when I was writing three book reviews a week. Um, for instance, I am in the process of reading the John Banville novel now, um, having run a review and read through the book in terms of editing that review. I'm reading the book with no other expectation than pure pleasure, and I think that there is a way that that is an unexpected, but so far, fairly active fringe benefit of the job. Well, David Eulin, congratulations on the new position, and best of luck to you, and thanks for coming on Mobulus Radio. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, this is David Lehman speaking. The poem I'm going to read is One Size Fits All, a Critical Essay. One Size Fits All, a Critical Essay. Though, already, perhaps, however. On one level, among other things, with and with in a similar vein, to be sure, make no mistake, nary a trace. However, aside from with and with, not and not, rather manifestly 
indeed. Which is to say, in fictional terms, for reasons that are never made clear, not without meaning, though, as is far from unusual, perhaps too late. The first thing that must be said is, perhaps, because, and not least of all, certainly more, which is to say, in every other respect, meanwhile. But then perhaps, though, and though, on the whole, alas. Moreover, in contrast, and even, admittedly, partly because, and partly because, yet it must be said. Even more significantly, perhaps, in other words, with and with, whichever way, one thing is clear, beyond the shadow of a doubt. One Size Fits All can be found in Operation Memory by David Lehman from the Princeton University Press. David Lehman's newest book is called Jim and Dave Defeat the Masked Man. It's co-authored by James Cummins and illustrated by Archie Rand. It's also got a foreword by Denise Duhamel and special guest appearances by Beth Ann Fenley and Bill Wadsworth. Jim and Dave Defeat the Masked Man is published by Soft Skull Press and the official publication date is today. And that's our show for the 29th of November, 2005. Thanks to the Davids, David Eulen, the new editor of the Los Angeles Times Book Review, who spoke to us from his office in L.A., and to David Lehman, who spoke to us from his office in Greenwich Village. We'll be back tomorrow with the hippest book designer in New York City who doesn't work for Melville House. Really? You thought it was Chip Kid? Ooh, boy, are you wrong. We'll also be speaking to a reporter who's got literary evidence that George Bush is the Antichrist. For now, thanks to engineer Andrew Steinmetz, to Becky Kramer and Kelly Burdick and Valerie Marians of Melville House. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, that whale is out there, man.
Chajantin fusene eta jawastini Chajantin fusene eta jawastini Come on, let's go. 